Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to start by saying thank you to our Shine Committee and for all of those helped this week to make Shine such a success. I would rattle off the names, but I would sure miss somebody. I just want to say thank you to all of our volunteers who helped to make it a great week. Uh, we heard so many glowing compliments about the camp this week. So thank you, all of our uh, ladies who helped with that. It was back in July of 2002 that nine coal miners were trapped 240 feet beneath the Earth's surface for 77 hours. Now, if you're like me, I was glued to the TV until they pulled up that last capsule containing that last coal miner. He was brought to safety. Just moments earlier, people were cheering wildly at the surface as they lowered a walkie-talkie down into that shaft and they learned that all nine of the miners were alive. You see, some, some poorly documented mines and, uh, and, and an abandoned mine that really wasn't, uh, wasn't documented properly started some drilling that led to water flooding into that mine and trapping these nine coal miners. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine being in complete and total darkness, cold water rising with every breath that you take thinking that it might be your last one. Can you imagine that? And can you imagine the excitement that you would feel knowing that there is love and, and, and a warm reception waiting for you just above the earth's surface as they lower down that capsule as you get into that capsule and you're taken to safety, I can't imagine what it would feel like to arrive out of that situation 77 hours later. How thankful you would be, right? But imagine if the rescuers had lowered that capsule down to you and you said to yourself and to the other miners and over the walkie-talkie, you said, uh, that thing's too restrictive, I'm not getting in that thing. I'm claustrophobic. I, there's no way I'm getting inside that capsule. Or imagine as the rescue operation was taking place and these rescue workers are communicating with you on the walkie-talkie and you say, you know what? I belong to the West Virginia Miners Association. Unless they're involved in this, I'm not coming up. Or imagine communicating back to the rescue workers and saying something like, you know what? I think I'll just stay down here. You know, it seems pretty boring up there. At least there's some excitement down here. As silly and as ridiculous as those comments seem, I'm sure that maybe you have heard something like that when trying to share the gospel with someone. You know, the prophet Jeremiah had something to say about this. He said, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Jeremiah is asking a couple of questions that he already knows the answer to, right? Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Of course there was a balm. Of course the great physician was present. So why weren't people getting healed? Well, because they didn't want to cure. They didn't want to be healed. Why would anyone choose sickness and death over life? Or to put it another way, why would anyone choose hell over heaven? It happens all the time, doesn't it? While walking down the street, a U.S. senator is struck by a car and killed immediately. He arrives in heaven, and as stories like this go, Peter is there 
awaiting his arrival. Peter looks at the senator and says, I got to tell you, we don't typically see government officials up here. And the senator says, well, that's fine. Just let me in. And Peter says, yeah, but I've got orders from above. And we're not going to just let you walk in here. We're going we're to let you vote. We're going to let you see 24 hours of hell and 24 hours of heaven. And then you get to make the decision. And the senator says, well, I mean, okay, but I can tell you my mind's pretty well made up, but if you say so. And so they get in an elevator, they go down, 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 and the, elevator's door, the elevator doors open to hell. But hell is not what the senator expected. There's this lush, beautiful green golf course. There's a clubhouse. Much of his friends are there, and they're celebrating, and they're dancing, they're drinking, they're partying. The devil is there himself, and the devil, you know what, is a pretty nice guy. He seems cordial, he seems kind, and this is not what the senator expected. And he's enjoying his time there, and the 24 hours just flies by. Peter comes to get him and says, now you've got to spend 24 hours in heaven. And so he reluctantly gets on the elevator, and it goes up, 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 and the doors open. And it's pristine, it's beautiful. There are people floating around on clouds, some playing harps. Everybody's peaceful and serene, and he spends his time there relaxing but the 24 hours are up, and Peter says, okay, now you've got to make a decision. And the senator says, you know, I, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I think I'll choose hell. And so down, down, down he goes, and the elevator doors open, and it's a barren wasteland. There's no golf course. There's no clubhouse anymore. His friends are miserable. Everyone's in misery. Dressed in tattered clothes, it's, it's, it's like a garbage dump. And the devil is not nice. In fact, he's a cruel slave driver. And the senator looks at the devil and he says, what, what happened? I mean, it was beautiful. It was lush. It was green. There was partying and dancing and drinking and all these things. And the devil said, yeah, uh, yesterday I was campaigning. Today you voted. Why would anyone choose hell over heaven? But it happens so often, doesn't it? Sadly, many people have been persuaded to vote for hell in our culture. Some just don't make a spiritual uh, life a priority. Some are banking on morality as their ticket to heaven. Some believe that uh, they are too far gone, that God could never forgive someone like them. Some people feel like they're, they're good enough, that God will forgive me no matter what I do because I'm a pretty good person. When you boil it all down, here is a truth that cannot be denied. There are the saints and there are the ain'ts. And there's really only two categories. And everyone fits into one of those two categories. Scripture presents the categories like this, righteous and unrighteous. And 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 states it like this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, period. Let's end there. And I want you to note the examples of unrighteousness that Paul gives. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, and so on. Paul is not saying that these are the only sins that will keep someone out of heaven. Paul is not saying that this is an exhaustive list, that these are the really important sins that you need to pay attention to. Obviously, he's not going to list every single sin. But if you want a more exhaustive list, you can go to Romans 1, 29 through 31. And it reads like this. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. I would bet that every single one of us could find ourselves on these lists. Maybe multiple times. But my guess is all of us have dealt with at least one thing on the list found in 1 Corinthians 6 or in Romans chapter 1. Unfortunately, we don't always see these sins as serious, egregious, or something that should be repented of even. I mean, gossips. You mean gossiping is going to keep me out of heaven? Gossip is a class C misdemeanor sin at best, right? Or what about being arrogant or boastful? I mean, you got to toot your own horn. Nobody's going to do it for you. You mean to tell me not taking out the trash when my mom tells me to could keep me out of heaven? And of course, murderers. I mean, certainly we understand that murderers aren't going to make it to heaven, but you know, what about the murder of innocent life in the womb? Our culture presents that as, as moral, as something that is a right and a choice. We celebrate it even sometimes. Look, we are all dogs. You understand that, right? We are all dogs. And contrary to popular belief, all dogs don't go to heaven. Paul said this, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Verse 23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all dogs. Paul says the unrighteous won't make it to heaven. And do you know who the unrighteous are? You guessed it. You, me, all of us, right? Without Christ, we are all dogs. We are all unrighteous. Every single one of us. And if we were to take the text that we're looking at this morning, and if we were to put a period at verse 10, and the Bible were to end at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, we would all be in a world of trouble, wouldn't we? The gospel certainly wouldn't be good news. But thankfully, it doesn't end at verse 10. There's a verse 11, and it reads like this. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You know, one of the most heinous serial killers of all time was a guy by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. And from 1978 to 1991, he raped, he murdered, he cannibalized, he preserved body parts of his victims, 17 young boys and men from 1978 to 1991. Many of his acts included necrophilia as well. I mean, by any definition, you would have to classify him as wicked, evil, Satan spawn, right? While sitting in prison, he did an interview. And in that interview, he talked about how he wished he could find some peace. And there was a uh, Church of Christ preacher by the name of Curtis Booth who was watching that interview, and he thought to himself, you know, I know what would give him peace. Jesus Christ would give him peace. And so he sends Jeffrey Dahmer a Bible correspondence course, and Jeffrey Dahmer completes it. He sends it back to Mr. Booth with a letter that said, I have completed all the other steps. I just need to be baptized. And the warden here 
says, I don't know if that's possible. We'd have to bring in a baptistry in, so I, I don't know that I'm going to be able to be baptized. And so Curtis Booth got in touch with Roy Ratcliffe, a preacher in Wisconsin who was much closer to the prison where Jeffrey Dahmer was, was stationed. And he began meeting with Dahmer on a regular basis, studying with him, and eventually baptizing him. And after Jeffrey Dahmer died in prison, Roy Ratcliffe went on record to say, I have no doubt that Jeffrey Dahmer was a saved individual. I feel confident that the angels in heaven are rejoicing and that he is there. Let me ask you, can God save someone like Jeffrey Dahmer? Surely, when the Bible says the gospel is for all, it doesn't mean Jeffrey Dahmer. Be careful how you answer the question. Because if God cannot or will not save Jeffrey Dahmer, then he cannot or will not save you. You may not like it that Jeffrey Dahmer could be in heaven, but there is hope for all of us if there's hope for him. All dogs can go to heaven. The unrighteous can have the unremoved and just be righteous. The murderer, the disobedient child, the inventor of evil, the sexually immoral, all of them can have the unremoved because the gospel is for bad people. The gospel is for bad people. It's good news for bad people. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Notice that, to everyone who believes, everyone, that includes every individual on the planet, that includes all those on the list in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Romans chapter 1, it includes even people like Jeffrey Dahmer. The gospel is an expression of God's love for sinners. For God so loved the world, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then, of course, there's 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Those five words are a beautiful summation of the gospel and conversion, aren't they? Such were some of you. Notice the change in tense. Such were some of you, but you have been sanctified, but you have been justified, you've been washed. You were, now you are. This is what you were, now this is what you are, because a miracle has occurred, right? Conversion is the miracle whereby God changes the tenses of your life. What a beautiful thing, right? You were dead in your sins. Now you are alive in Christ. Conversion is the complete and absolute confidence that what you were does not determine who you are, and what you are does not determine what you will be. You can be changed, you can be different, and your life can move in an entirely different direction. When I was living in Missouri, I got to be friends with a gentleman who was a guy who was pretty rough around the edges just put it that way I really like this guy but he was uh this guy who made some pretty poor decisions in his life and he was living with those decisions and we were talking one day and I brought up spiritual matters and he said you know Chris I'm going to stop you right there I hear everything you're saying and I appreciate what you're saying but a leopard cannot change its spots and I think he was surprised to hear me say you know what you're exactly right you can't but God can the blood of Christ can. You are not beyond saving. No matter what state you find yourself in. 
the almighty, all-powerful God can bring about the change in your life that seems absolutely impossible. Remember who's writing these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is Paul. Paul was exhibit A. Do you remember what Paul was? He was a persecutor of Christians who became a proclaimer of Christ. How does that happen? The only way that happens is by the change that the gospel and conversion brings, by the blood of Christ. That's the only way that happens. Paul was God's best man. Through the miracle of conversion, that's the only way such radical change can occur. Understand, God specializes in new. In Psalm 40 and 3, David writes, He put a new song in my mouth. Isaiah speaks of God giving Zion a new name. The prophet Ezekiel shares God's promise to renew Israel and to give the people a new heart and a new spirit. We know that God gives new life. He gives a new, a new beginning. He gives us a new self. And God gives us a new birth. Please listen to me. If you hear nothing else in the lesson this morning, please listen to this. If the possibility of real change is gone, then all we're left with is a bunch of rules. If the possibility of real change is taken out of the equation, all you hold in your hand is just a bunch of rules and a bunch of stories that really are random and make no sense. God specializes, though, in newness. God is a God of second chances. And throughout Scripture, we find God forgiving and using individuals that most of us would have written off a long time ago, right? People that none of us would have given a second chance to, probably. Each and every faithful Christian who is sitting here this morning was once outside of Christ and thus an enemy of God. Our sins are no less repulsive than those that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans chapter 1. It's not like those were the big sins and ours are minor. Even if it were just you and you alone that is sin, that's enough to put Jesus on the cross. We might like to think that our sins are not quite as egregious, but without Christ, we're no better off. We may not be Jeffrey Dahmer, but we're still in our sins without Christ. You know what the most important word in the English language is? Most people say it's but, B-U-T. It's certainly better than and. I mean, and shows up on the scene always wanting something extra, right? Uh, or can't make a decision to save its life. And so you got this sassy little conjunction, but. And when you look at but, it seems like everything that follows that conjunction is what really means something. Everything before that was really meaningless, right? I can say, Debbie, you're a great person, but that cancels out everything that I said before about Debbie. The but really tells you how I feel, right? Notice Paul's use of the word but here. Notice that little word and notice the implications of that little word. Such were some of you, but... You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Nothing ever really gets said until but enters into the equation. Now, that doesn't mean that what Paul said leading up to that little word was meaningless. It just means that they are no longer those things. They were those things. But now they are something different. 
It's not that everything prior to verse 11 is unimportant. It's just that what he says in verse 11 is most important because everything hinges on that little word, but. If Paul had not included that but, then we would have an incomplete picture. We wouldn't have hope. The gospel would be non-existent. You and I would still be unrighteous. But notice the emphasis here, the changing of tenses, were, but. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I were unrighteous, were, but we have been justified through the power of the gospel, through the blood of Christ. We have been declared righteous by a holy God. You and I are living proof as to the recreating power of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. This is a sad truth. Unrighteous people will not go to heaven. I mean, Paul said... If you do not know, or do you not know, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those are not my words, those are Paul's words. Unrighteous people will not be inherited. If you don't know that, you need to know that. You know, we live in a day and age where people think pretty much everybody's going to go to heaven, and Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, that's not true. Not everybody's going to heaven. The unrighteous won't make it to heaven. But, remember, there is a but here. God and sin are fundamentally incompatible. Heaven isn't for the unrighteous. That's not a pleasant thought, but it's true nonetheless. Paul makes that very clear. And he even gives a list of those sinners who will be excluded from fellowship with the Heavenly Father. And again, it's not an exhaustive list, but notice some of these sins. Fornicators and adulterers won't be there. You know, the virtue of chastity was a rather foreign concept to the culture at this time. The, the word fornicator actually means male prostitute as it's used here. Idolaters won't be in heaven. You know, one of the greatest buildings in Corinth was the temple to Aphrodite or the goddess of love. So this false god represented the commingling of immorality and idolatry. He says the effeminate won't be there. That word literally means those who have become soft. Those who live for subtle pleasures, it describes someone who has succumbed to pleasure, one who has no longer any resistance to any kind of fulfillment of sensual desires. Thieves and robbers obviously fall into the category of unrighteous. The ancient world was full of thieves and robbers, and where they, where they flourished was in two places, bathhouses and gymnasiums. So when people were bathing or, or working out, thieves would come in and steal their clothes, steal their possessions. Drunkards will miss out on heaven, according to Paul. The Greek word here is methos, and it denotes uncontrolled drinking. Normally, the Greeks were sober in that they would mix their wine with with water. But in the unrestrained culture of the time, the Corinthians, many of them, were soused a lot of the time. Paul also mentions homosexuality. It must be understood that in ancient Greece and Rome, few people were exclusively heterosexual. There was a, this was a time of great sexual experimentation. And so the bisexual lifestyle was rather common. Socrates, for instance, had sexual relations with other males, as did Plato. You may have read Plato's work, The Symposium. It's considered one of the greatest literary works of all time on the subject of love, but it was based on his own sexual encounters with boys. The Emperor Nero had relationships with women, but also had several male partners. 
Suffice it to say, this was, a, this was a problem in the ancient world that Paul was dealing with. One man, one woman for life was, was being perverted. And many folks in that day and age were not buying in. So this is the culture that the Corinthian letter was, was received. This is the culture that Paul was speaking to. And this is the culture that some were immersed in. Some were immersed in. But he writes... Not anymore. You were these things, but now you are something different. And there's something else to mention here that I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about. This change in tenses from were to are signifies much more than just a change in behavior. The idolater didn't just quit worshiping idols. The adulterer didn't just stop committing adultery. The thief didn't just stop stealing. There's more to it than that. The goal of the gospel It's not to just reshape your behavior. The goal of the gospel is to reshape our lives. The primary concern here is not behavior. The primary concern is identity. Notice that Paul doesn't say, you stole, you coveted, you drank too much, you had sex with people you shouldn't have sex with. No, he says, you were these things. You were a drunkard. You were a thief. You were identified with these sins. You weren't just engaging in them. You were them, but not anymore. You're not identified by these sins anymore because you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified. Now you're identified by who? By Jesus Christ. Now you're identified with Jesus Christ. And so your identity changes and your behavior follows. But don't get the order reversed. It's not just about stopping a certain sinful behavior. It's about changing your identity. It's about becoming something brand new. Change your identity. And it changes your behavior. You know, Mark Twain once said that he would never be a part of an organization that would have him as a member. And maybe he was joking when he said that, but you know, all of us who are Christians who are gathered here this morning, we're a part of an organization that would never have him as a member, right? Based on his own definition. And that's okay. It really is. All of us, are unrighteous outside of Christ. It is because of Christ that we are made righteous. That's the way it should be. The unrighteous should be welcomed into what we are doing here. The unrighteous should be welcomed into what we are doing and what we are participating in. We should be seeking to welcome the unrighteous because that's the only way they're going to be made righteous. Perhaps it would be good if we had a sign like this. Because they should be welcome. All sinners should be welcome here. The unrighteous should be welcome. What happens all too often is we expect them to clean up their act before they come here. Come in, get baptized, and then we'll talk. That's not how we should operate. Many people in our world are seeking something and we shouldn't expect them to come in and be at our level before that we will talk to them. Heaven will be filled with people who were unrighteous but who are now righteous. So we had better reach out to the unrighteous. We had better welcome sinners. We had better point them in the direction of Jesus so that they can change the direction of their lives. What we don't need is a sign like this. That doesn't do any good. It's not very welcoming. It doesn't really say, hey, come in. 
We want to talk with you. We want to help you. We want to remove the un from your life so that you can be righteous. We cannot expect people to just be righteous when they come through our doors. We cannot expect them to get righteous before we'll help them. That's not how any of this works. We welcome them while they are unrighteous so that they will meet Jesus and become righteous. Correct? This is the part where you nod your head, yeah. So let me ask you. Are alcoholics welcome here? Are addicts welcome here? Are idolaters welcome here? Is the homosexual welcome here? This is the part where you shake your head yes. Do they have to be cleaned up before they come here? This is the part where you shake your head no. If the unrighteous are not welcome here, if this is not a climate where the unrighteous, the broken, the messed up, feel like they can come in here and receive healing, then every one of you need to leave immediately. The only way someone is going to go from were to are is because of people like us. And we of all people should know what it's like to change the tenses of our lives. So if you find yourself on one of these lists, if you're someone here who is broken and needs healing, if you're someone who is looking for newness, I want you to know that you are welcome here and you can find it here. Let us know of your need as we come and stand and sing.